It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 18th, 2009. I hope you had a great weekend. Got a big show today. Chock full of Bible teaching. Yeah. It's like a big Snickers bar, just filled with nuts and nougat and whatever else that's in a... It's all throughout, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's like a Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookie. You can't bite into it without biting a chocolate chip. All right, thanks for staying with us. My name is Chris Roseboro. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. Here at Fighting for the Faith, we dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying to the Word of God. And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, because what's the point in doing theology if it's dry and dusty? (laughs) So we do serious theology. Don't think for a second that just because we have some fun here at Fighting for the Faith that we're not doing the heavy lifting. In fact, I would say that here at Fighting for the Faith, we do more heavy lifting than any, any seeker-sensitive church out there on the planet. Yes, sir, Bob. All you seeker-driven guys out there that have gone purpose-driven, (laughs) We got more scripture in one episode of Fighting for the Faith uh, than you do in an entire six-week sermon series that you guys do. And just just this little common observation that I pointed out. All right, we've got an interesting program lined up today. Uh, We're going to do a little bit of listener email. (laughs) We've got a a Patricia King Extreme Prophetic um, update. (laughs) Apparently... We're going to be learning from uh, one of the channel leaders at Extreme uh, Prophetic on uh, on how witchcraft works. Apparently, this is a very important message for us to be hearing. And as a result of this particular segment, we've now changed up our Patricia King. Se- you know, whenever we do a Patricia King and Extreme Prophetic update, I have discovered and found. In fact, I've been searching for this for a while. The perfect, the absolute perfect. Music to intro uh, any Patricia King segment that we did. Now we we used to do the Monster Mash with her just because she uh, she said that she would you know had some kind of a werewolf ministry and and one of the uh, segments that we reviewed here they had a, a team of people that was going out to mortuaries in the hopes of raising the dead and so far no, nobody's been raised. Just want to continue to point that little factoid out. So we've got a Patricia King update. Uh, the interesting story coming off of, uh, I'll give the hat tip to uh, Cronock, that's uh, uh, V's uh, blog. Uh, the question is, was Michelangelo a proto-Lutheran? This is like an interesting story. Uh, and then we've got, uh, for those of you end, time, end, end of the world enthusiasts, is that the right word? Enthusiast? Are you an end of the world enthusiast? <laughs> I don't think that's the right way of saying it. Um, there's a technology uh, that was uh, mentioned at the WorldNet Daily website. Uh, killer chip tracks humans and releases a poison. <laughs> yeah. uh, mark of the beast with a little bit of toxin point thrown in here. The, and the reason why we're going to cover this particular story happens to do with the fact that, again, keep in mind that no longer is Homeland Security looking after uh, the important threats like Islamo-fascists and Islamic uh, extremists and radicals who are trying to overthrow Western civilization and bring us all into Sharia law. No, those aren't the terrorists anymore. If you believe in the end of the world, if you are pro-life, if you are uh, 
you know, in favor of smaller government, less taxes, and you happen to also believe in prophecy regarding, you know, the apocalypse and things like that. Well, then you now, oh, oh, I forgot one more important thing here. And that is, is that uh, another, if you're a gun owner, so if, if, if you understand what this sound is, then, uh, then you, um, then you are considered to be a potential terrorist. And so we've got to, we've got to keep, you know, we've got to send out our secret messages to uh, our peeps, you know, because, you know, as it turns out, I mean, fighting for the faith, we're nothing but a signal op station for uh, Christian sleeper cells. Yes, Christian sleeper cells who could potentially become domestic terrorists. So we'll be covering that story today. And then we're going to be listening to and reviewing a, a sermon called Potential, uh, preached by Sean Lovejoy uh, of the Church Planners. Uh, network. And uh, I want you to stay tuned to this. I know some of you just can't stand listening when we do a bad sermon review. I've changed things up a little bit. Okay. Uh, In fact, most of today's Bible teaching is going to occur during the sermon. Unfortunately, it's not Sean Lovejoy that's going to be doing the um, Bible teaching. Um, I'm going to be doing the Bible teaching that he didn't do, that he was supposed to be doing, specifically concerning the text that he was reading. So it's called Potential. Yeah, again, this is another one of these seeker-driven themes in their preaching. So stay tuned. Uh, Today's sermon review is chock full of of Bible. In fact, right before I went on the air today, I was counting up uh, how many pages worth of, uh, you know, what I do when I put my program notes together, a lot of times I'll print out my, uh, print out my biblical texts ahead of time so that I have it. Today's program, I kid you not, I think I've got seven pages of Bible here at, uh, on a 12 point font. Isn't that ridiculous? Well, that's how much correcting needs to be done. All right, moving along here, moving along. We have email today uh, from young Ben Mordecai. He writes, uh, now this is in regards to Phyllis Tickle's uh, claim that the first 2,000 years of uh, of human history was the age of the Father. The second 2,000 years, that would be from Christ's ascension to now, or, well, maybe up until nine years ago, was the age of the Son. And apparently uh, the next 2,000 years, 2,000 to 4,000, is now the age of the Holy Spirit. Um, so Ben writes, he says, then does this mean that we can set doomsday for plus or minus 4,000 AD, you know, AD 4,000 plus or minus 100 years? You know, Ben, you, you raise a good question. And um, as tempting as that would be to uh, to set a date for the end of the world, um, we must resist all such urges, you know, because no one knows the day or the hour, not even Phyllis Tickle. And quite frankly, uh, after hearing her explanation, her her idea that uh, you know that the human history is tied up into these three different you know ages based upon the three persons of the Trinity, and the fact that she based this upon a Catholic mystic, um, I wouldn't take that one to the bank. It yeah, that one feels about as as phony as a Bill Clinton three dollar bill. Just wanted to point that out. So no, you don't want to do that. Okay, got an email from Stacy. This is a weird one. Okay. (laughs) She says, Hi, Chris. I recently read this article by a man who does revivals in the town I live, uh, the town I live in. By the way, she didn't tell me what town she lives in. 
darn. Anyway, she says, uh, does this seem correct to you? Thanks. So, so here's the quote. This is from a blog, and we'll link to this later just to see if we can alert this guy to the fact that he's way off the mark. So here it is. Quote, about a week ago, I had lunch with a friend in Norway who has a priest education. What? <laughs> What's a priest education? Okay, um, and also has has a great insight into the Greek language. He reads Old Testament Greek like I read English. Our talk drifted to praise and worship. Uh, Gear, that is his name, then tells me that the Greek word in the original text used for worship in the New Testament actually means to lean in and kiss. This tidbit of information exploded within me, and the curiosity in me asked on, yes, Garrett continues to say, that the word for worship could just as well be translated as to kiss intimately and to kiss deeply. And imagine that I finally received a good explanation of what worship not only is, but means and is all about from now on. It will be easy to explain to new believers and fresh disciples why worship has such depth and is always so refreshing. So apparently the Greek word for uh, worship means to lean in and kiss. Now, funny enough, it does and it doesn't. We'll explain here in a minute. I, I just wanted to throw that little uh, marker in at this point in responding to Stacy's email. Uh, the the quote continues. He says, "When two people are in love, uh, are in love, kiss, then intimacy and closeness between the two is created. But at the same time, it also refreshes. To worship and honor God is, with other words, to kiss God intimately and deeply and with passion. Worship will create closeness, joy, as well as ignite and kindle the fire. I love worship. We have to worship in the right place. Worshiping God early in the morning in the kitchen." Or in a house church among disciples is, a, is is in wonderful as well as refreshing, but may not be so on the city square or in front of unbelievers. I have been thinking I have always felt kind of embarrassed when I have seen a couple making out in the open on the commuter train or on a bus on the verge of offense and unpleasant. When it comes to kiss, one does not want to be an observer. Worship should not be observed. Worship should not be performed or showed in concert form. This is why we in Mission SOS have drawn a clear line between festival music, Christian performance, and praise and worship. Worship is for Jesus, loving disciples, but probably belongs more in the prayer closet in in the church service and among believers rather than in public and society. Worship may never be exploited. Praise and worship is to kiss God in spirit and in truth, just as Jesus said. Kiss God a lot this summer. It will make you crazy for him. Now, Stacy, here's the here's the problem. I'm going to answer you straight up. Uh, we're a gear. Sorry, the guy from Norway with a priest education is both right and wrong. Okay, and uh, let's let's do a little bit of biblical work here, and I, I think you'll be able to see this pretty clearly. Okay, the Greek word for uh, worship that he's referring to, the Greek word we're looking for is the Greek word. Pros kuneo. Okay, now it's a combination of two words. Pros meaning towards or into, kuneo meaning to kiss. So literally, the word, the Greek word, if you were to just semantically work it out, you, you, you could make the argument that yeah, it means to quote lean in and kiss, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Let me give you some examples. Okay, first of all, let me read to you from. Uh, probably one of the best lexicons out there, otherwise known as BDAG for you Greek guys out there. 
Um, let me see here. Proskuneo. It is used to designate the custom of prostrating oneself before persons and kissing their feet. <laughs> right. It means to des- it's to prostrate oneself before a person and kiss their feet. To express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. Fall down and worship. Uh, do obeisance. To prostrate oneself before. To do reverence to or welcome respectfully. Okay? So this is not an erotic kiss. This is not, worship is not you French kissing God. This is, proskuneo has no implications of making out in it whatsoever. None. It's not there. Instead, it's an attitude to express or gesture to to express one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. Now, funny enough, we actually have some examples of some proskuneoing going on in Scripture. And it's between Jesus and women. Okay? See if you can figure this out here. Okay? From Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 36 and read to verse 50. We read this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing before him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. What does proskuneo look like? It looks like this. Notice that it doesn't say that this woman of the city came in, sat next to Jesus, and gave him a big sloppy wet one on the lips. And next thing you know, they're making out in public. And that that was her act of worship. No. Not at all. In fact, this guy here, uh, Gear... He's uh, he's not understanding culturally what exactly is meant here. We uh, we here in the United States, we here in Western cultures, um, we don't have this idea of kissing for any other reason. Now, understand this, my my kids, my daughters give me kisses on the cheeks. Okay, it that's a that's a family thing, you know. I get kisses on the cheek from my daughters. My son doesn't do that, thank God. I deck him, but um, you know. And then my wife and I we kiss, you know. But see, there's there's a greater context here. What this guy is doing here, gear. What he's doing, he's reading in our cultural understanding of kissing into the concept of kissing in proskuneo. But that's not what it means culturally. It literally means to fall down and kiss somebody's feet. Now, let me continue with the story because it's a good one. Okay, so you want to know what proskuneo looks like? The woman began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair uh, of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, she uh, and he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answered and said to them, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Uh, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he'd canceled the larger debt. And he said to them, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house, and, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, this is an interesting story that Jesus is telling here. Notice, right off the bat, he's talking about, he says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. This is an interesting story. Why? Because in telling the story, Jesus is telling Simon, Hey, Simon, you owe me a debt. And so what's funny is, is that the parallel here is that Simon is the guy who, who quote, had the lesser of the debts. And the woman is the one who had the greater of the debts. Both of them were in debt, and neither of them could pay. That's the best part of this. So Jesus is telling this wicked story here that Simon is not going to get it until a couple days later. This is like a ticking time bomb of a story. You know, Simon, a Pharisee, he thinks he's zealous. He thinks he's righteous. He thinks he's keeping the law, right? And Jesus tells the story, says a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, both, neither of them pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will will love him more? So Simon, a couple days later, is going to go, wait a second. Jesus, no, he couldn't have meant that. Wait a second. Am I, am I understanding? Jesus is saying that I owe him and I can't pay. <laughs> Unbelievable for a Pharisee, right? So there's there's kind of a subcurrent to the story that is that is just gospel dangerous. It's wonderful. So anyway, we're continuing on because this shows an example of of uh, worship. Simon answers, "Well, the one who canceled the, the larger debt." He said, "Okay." So then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair." Notice the contrast is between the woman and Simon, the one who who owed more and the one who owed less, but neither of them could pay, so the moneylender canceled both debts. See, that's the kicker in the story. And so what's happening here is, is that Jesus is comparing him to one who owes him a debt and pointing out the fact that the fact this woman is worshiping him, that that's appropriate, and it's appro- that's really what he should be doing. Okay, so she's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You should be kissing my feet, Simon. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You should have done the same. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little all the more reason by the way why you need to preach the law lawfully because the law shows that none of us needs to be forgiven little all of us need to be for there ain't none of us that's more righteous than this woman of the town this sinner woman the sad part is is that simon sees himself as somebody who needs to be forgiven little And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to uh, say among themselves, who is this? He he even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, so here's an example of what it looks like to worship. Okay? It's down on your face. 
kissing Christ's feet, not standing up next to him and making out. Okay? Matthew 28, by the way, also gives us another example involving a woman worshiping Christ. And notice it's not erotic. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, we read, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was like it was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Therefore, you will see him. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. There you will see me. So there it is. Proskoneo definitely does mean to, quote, lean in and kiss. But the idea is to kiss the feet of your God. Got it? Has nothing to do with making out. All right. So, and those of people out there that keep turning worship into that, shame on them. That is not, not, not what the Bible teaches. All right. Looking ahead here got to budget our time. I think what we're going to do is we're going to take our first break again a couple minutes early so I can spend a little bit more time. When we come out of the break, we're going, we have our Patricia King update. Uh, was Michelangelo a proto-Lutheran? Interesting story there. And then uh, Killer Chip tracks humans and releases a poison. And then at the second hour, we're going to be doing our sermon review, Sean Lovejoy's sermon. And I'll explain why we picked his sermon once we uh, get into the second hour. So lots and lots and lots of stuff coming up. You definitely don't want to miss it. I want to remind you, if you want to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, you can do that. My name there is Chris Rosebro. Or if you would like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter, you can do so. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here.
We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. White man overbite. Shaking in my seat here. Loving my bumper music. <laughs> Sorry, is, is, was that a mental picture that none of you needed to hear, see, whatever? All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. Want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio, which means that in order for us to continue to bring this cutting edge, deep theological, doctrinal, comparative discernment work to you, uh, we need you to partner with us and make it continue to help make it possible. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Now, if you prefer to do it, uh, to do this the more traditional way, you can. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, as promised, we've got a uh, Patricia King uh, update for you. And here is our brand new Patricia King music. Maestro, let it go. That's right. Those of you familiar with the old Peabody and Sherman show will remember this as the... There we go. That's the opening to the fractured fairy tales <laughs> segment of the Peabody and Sherman. So, so we we're going to be calling these basically fractured fairy tales because that's what they are. I kid you not, Patricia King. <laughs> oh man, oh, are you ready for this? Is this going to be Patricia King? She's going to be introducing a, um, a a gentleman who is a partner there at Extreme Prophetic whose name is Jason Westerfield. And so without any further ado, here is Patricia King about ready to introduce somebody who's going to be telling us some fractured fairy tales. Hi, Patricia King here with XP. And today I want to introduce to you Jason Westerfield. He's one of the most radical, one of the most unique individuals I've ever met. He has such a passion for the Lord, and he's really acquainted with the supernatural realm. Wow, he's acquainted with the supernatural realm. 
Now, my question is, now, do you become acquainted with the supernatural realm by, you know, by going to one of those speed dating services? You know, yeah, I, I, I've met Jane and, and uh, Jessica and, and the supernatural realm, too. We, we became acquainted. Never mind. Maybe that was a lame attempt at him. Let's continue. And any time that we've had Jason in as a speaker or, or um, have been out on the streets with him or whatever, there's such a uniqueness in him. And he takes us really deep yeah. into the things of God. He takes us really deep. <laughs> Why do I get the feeling that Patricia King's definition of the word deep is like nowhere even near my understanding of what deep is or even what the biblical definition is? Deep basically means get out your hip boots and your waders and maybe even a shovel because uh, we're going to be swimming in it and it's going to get really deep, if you know what I mean. Catch my drift. I would call Jason a seer because he sees into the supernatural realm. And when you're around him, he's a seer. (sighs) He opens up those realms for you to experience. He's very founded and grounded on the word of God. Loves not even close. You're going to find out. Here we go. The Bible loves worship. He's a wonderful family man. Uh He's an XP channel host. And and, and he's just a great friend. But today he's going to talk about a very interesting subject. Right. It's how witchcraft works. Wow, because where is that in the Bible? <sighs> All right, here we go from this grounded gentleman who, who's deep, really deep. Have you ever wondered? Well, you're going to find out now. You know, the power of Jesus Christ overcomes all the power of the enemy. Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Yes, the power of Jesus is greater than any power of witchcraft or any other demonic power at all. But let's see what kind of insights Jason is going to give us today and check his channel out too. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the insights here from Jason Westerfield. Going to tell us how witchcraft works. I've seen the Harry Potter movies. I mean, duh, all you got to do is never mind. I was in Salem within the past few years, and we hosted some meetings at a church. And while we were at this church, God began to do incredible things. There was a war going on, though, in worship, where uh-huh. I could I could feel the resistance in the air. But I told okay. So let me let me set this up. Let me translate here. He's in Salem, Massachusetts. You know. Home of the Salem Witch Trials. Of course, that that has to be witchcraft central, you know. And so he's at a church. And by the way, um, did I mention the fact that this is nothing but a fairy tale? Maybe I should reiterate that fact. It, this is a fractured fairy tale. Okay, by the way, let's continue. So I think you get it. Here we go. Well, the people, I said, if you'll keep pressing past this, God will begin to really come down in this place. Let's eagerly desire. Let's begin to press in. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violence will take it by force. <clears throat> in our passion, in our hunger, our thirst, our desperation, let's really begin to contend for this thing. We don't have to go after the enemy. Let's just go after God with all our heart, because when we go after Him, He's already coming towards us. He'll begin to come down from the heavens and clear out everything. So I don't care if something's the witchcraft capital or not. Jesus is the Lord over all creation. Did any of you understand a word that he just spoke? Hang on. (laughs) 
Let me back up the uh, the video here. <laughs> okay, hang on a second. I I was hearing words, but nothing was registering. Hey, hey let, let's let's try this again. Here we go. Listen, the kingdom of God suffers violence. The- now I got to back it up just a little farther than that. See if you reckon. Yeah. Do incredible things. There was a war going on though in worship where I could I could feel the resistance in the air. But I told the people, I said, if you'll keep pressing past this, God will begin to really come down in this place. Let's eagerly desire. Let's begin to press in. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent will take it by force. <clears throat> in our passion, in our hunger, our thirst, our desperation, let's really begin to contend for this thing. We don't have to go after the enemy. Let's just go after God with all our heart. Because when we go after Him, He's already coming towards us. He'll begin to come down from the heavens and clear out everything. So I don't care if something's the witchcraft capital or not. Jesus is the Lord over all creation. He's the one who created the heavens, and He's the Lord of heavens, and also the Lord of all the earth. And if we want Him to be Lord on earth, He can be Lord on earth. God is enthroned in the heavens, but He wants to be enthroned on the earth. And upon the people who God gave the earth and the, the resources to and gave us stewardship of, if we will really want Him to come, His rule and reign can come, there isn't a devil in hell that can stand against that presence of Almighty God. Oh, man. You know what this reminds me of? Have you all, you all ever heard of the uh, something called double talk or double speak? Believe it or not, there are guys that are, well, guys and gals out there that are experts in double talk and double speak. And I remember once I was at a conference and they had hired one of these guys to come and and do his stick on double talk and so he actually came out in front of everybody at the conference and they didn't warn us ahead of time that this guy nothing that he was about to say made any sense i th- you know what i think i found his blog hang on a second here okay yeah listen i want you to listen to this this guy's by the name his name is kevin king and kevin king is an expert in double talk and he basically makes the rounds going around talking at conferences and things like that and the whole point of his shtick is to not make any sense at all see if this sounds similar to uh, uh to jason westerfield to you as far as making any sense at all here, here. this is kevin king thank you Ladies and gentlemen, the information that I'm about to share with you is without question one of the two key ingredients for total success in the 21st century. The many requests that are made to fulfill the expectations from the first moment that you even consider the time that it takes to create the obligation. It must be necessary in order for others to save face if the problems can bring the subject whenever possible to involve the participants that would not normally have as much input under these working conditions. Now, they all see a need to react on short notice in each of these steps more closely before the issues can even be addressed. And I personally have found that most of the training in America begins by dividing the time, which is the basis that you must set standards for. The need is always followed by the solution as quickly as possible because one of the most important uses of this can become an even larger liability as the word spreads around the country. Okay, now... Now, I know you were hearing words and that guy was speaking with conviction as if he knew what he was talking about. But again, his name is uh, Kevin King, and he is a master at something called doublespeak or double talk. None of that made any sense. And, th- and that's on 
purpose. Now, the, in the video here he that I'm I'm looking at as he's presenting this double talk, people are looking at him like, okay, he, it sounds important, uh, but none of it makes any sense. I think uh, Jason Westerfield here of Extreme Prophetic is doing the same thing. I think he's engaging in double talk. Uh, let's, again, back up the tape and see if you can make any sense of these sentences. I do incredible things. There was a war going on, though, in worship where I could, I could feel the resistance in the air, but I told the people, I said, if you'll keep pressing past this, God will begin to really come down in this place. Let's eagerly desire. Let's begin to press in. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violence will take it by force. <clears throat> In our passion, in our hunger, our thirst, our desperation. Let's really begin to contend for this thing. We don't have to go after the enemy. Let's just go after God with all our heart. Because when we go after Him, He's already coming towards us. (laughs) This is total double talk. Oh, man. Begin to come down, rim the heavens, and clear out everything. So I don't care if something's the witchcraft capital or not. Jesus is the Lord over all creation. He's the one who created the heavens, and he's the Lord of heavens, and also the Lord of all the earth. And if we want him to be Lord on earth, he can be Lord on earth. God is enthroned in the heavens, but he wants to be enthroned on the earth. So God's enthroned in the heavens, but he wants to be enthroned on the earth. This is just complete double talk. But, of course, Patricia King told us that he was really grounded in the... And upon the people who God gave the earth and the the resources to and gave us stewardship of, if we will really want him to come, his rule and reign can come, there isn't a devil in hell that can stand against Uh that presence of Almighty God. Yeah, this definitely sounds like double talk. Let's compare. And it seems to embrace the entire meaning of the situation. If they could have appealed to each one of them before they even made their requests. Now, this also applies to those who reach out to the natural result of continuous effort. And I believe if the right choice is made, a true appreciation of the two extremes are pursued, then all levels of people will benefit from this process. Yeah, now that's Kevin King purposely engaging in double talk. His kingdom and his throne begins to come because Jesus is the Lord over everything. He's not just a copycat. He's actually the creator and has authority. But he gave his authority to his bride. So we'll begin to press in and contend for for these things in authority, especially in the area of our hunger and our passion, and open our heart up as wide as we can, and fear not. Do not be afraid of man. Do not be afraid now of... Now, that's the- Jason Westerfield of Extreme Prophetic. Uh, I think this is double talk. It's, it, let's, let's compare it to Kevin King again. Here we go. any given time. Now, as you well know, circumstances are definitely an indication that there's absolutely no element of chance for both pleasant or even unpleasant conditions. And by the way, these conditions can only exist in the most affordable manner. Now there's one... Okay, that's double talk. And here we go. ...pains a man. Do not be afraid of somebody's witchcraft curses. Let's begin to speak the things God has uh, spoken to us and around our lives and begin to walk in the blessing. What you fear sometimes comes upon you. Let's not fear those things and not give them any power. Let's just walk in the glory of God where, where nothing of oppressiveness can stand. And so we are at this place as we begin to press in God's presence and glory begin to come. And God said, I want you to begin to call out different conditions. We're right there in Salem, Massachusetts. So I start calling out different conditions and people. The fire of God began to come. People were getting delivered. People were getting healed miraculously right in the place was absolutely incredible. A lot of people with insanity, mental illnesses, bipolarity, this, this, this tra- torment and harassment, depression got completely freed uh, over these people. But during worship, 
I went into a visitation on the ground. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of similarity. Now he's kind of slipped into a little bit more of his, of his fractured fairy tale. Where this, this spirit came over to me and ran at me. And it looked really aggressive. It looked really mean. Uh -huh. You know what it was? It was witchcraft. And what witchcraft did... Really? Uh, there was a spirit that came after you named witchcraft? You don't say. Wow, that's impressive. You must be spiritual. Is is it just kind of like three legs of witchcraft? There's intimidation and fear, like domination. Uh huh. Yeah. God gave us power and authority to take dominion, but not to dominate over one another. And so this thing will try to dominate and suppress you to uh -huh. make you feel little in your own eyes. But God says. It's and where is that in the Bible, by the way? There, uh, Jason. Anywhere. Just. The man thing is in his heart, so is he. And it's no longer you, but Christ in you. So God in you is really, really, really big, bigger than any devil. And so what happened during this time, there's not only intimidation, right. timidity, yeah. and a dominating spirit, which is one leg. Yeah. You also have manipulation yeah. uh, that begins to take place in perversion. And then you also have deception and lying. So manipulation and perversion and deception and lying, kind of like what you're doing right now. I mean, this whole story is made up, right? So what this witchcraft looks like is a few different things. The first thing it'll do is it'll literally try to intimidate you. Yeah. But you don't have to bow to a spirit of fear. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. He's given you a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. And love casts out all fear. Cause yeah, this is double talk, by the way. Fear involves torment. God doesn't want you to have a tormenting mind. Uh -huh. He wants to set you in your right mind. Right, you yeah. have the mind of Christ. I mean, every single believer is more brilliant than Einstein because we have the mind of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me back that up. This is just ridiculous. Hey. <laughs> God doesn't want you to have a tormenting mind. He wants to set you in your right mind. You have the mind of Christ. I mean, every single believer is more brilliant than Einstein because we have the mind of Christ. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. All wisdom, all knowledge, everything. So what we need to do is begin to press into God, not give in to occultic powers, not give in to the spirit of the right. spirit's world, which is anti-Christ. It's not anti-Jesus. He's yeah. a great guy. People yeah. think that in the world. But it's anti-Christ. It's anti-anointing. But if it's no longer you who live, but Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's the anointing in you. It's anti-anointing. The thing that... Yeah, this, again, he slipped into this double talk. One thing that I want to make perfectly clear, just like everything I've said up to this point. Everything I have said up to this point has been strictly Brannis because the Cabochon is going out of the Cedal Foreign Staff. The Jungathai with the Lachma said the Mendelsteins were a leech of theotums. Yeah, I, I think that guy makes a little bit more sense than the Jason here. The devil's afraid of is the truth of God, but he's also afraid of the anointing of God because the anointing of God that destroys the yokes of the enemy. Yeah. He wants to keep us under bondage, under uh -huh. slavery. Right. We're, we're orphans and we're victims and we're lack of mentality and we don't think we have power and authority. But Jesus gave us that power and authority. So what we know up here, we need to begin to know in our heart and begin to act like who God says we are and do what he said. We I'm hearing words. No. <laughs> oh, man. And I'm sure this guy is, his ministry is far more successful than mine is. You can do and not give in to a spirit of fear, an anti-Christ spirit, a spirit of this world, but begin to walk into the victory of the cross. I have got the wrong job. I tell you, I just got to learn how to speak doublespeak and then get on Patricia King's Extreme Prophetic Channel. I could make a truckload of money saying nothing.
Once you overcome the intimidation, the next thing the Spirit will try to do is it'll try to get you on the defensive. Yeah. So it'll begin to point things out. It's called the accuser of the brethren, the condemner. It's condemnation, which there's now, therefore, no more condemnation oh, in Christ yeah. Jesus. And he'll start picking out faults in you, right. especially areas where or your insecurities are inadequate. So he'll pick out these different things to try to get you on the defensive. <sighs> yep. That's what it was. It was a fractured fairy tale. We'll make it into a <laughs> into a post over at uh, the Museum of Idolatry at a little eleven.com. We'll put it up there, and we'll even put up the Kevin King double talk thing so that you guys. <laughs> oh man, <sighs> the crazy things that cross our desk here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That was absolutely just loony. If any of you can make any sense of that, please, could you send me the uh, Jason Westerfield decoder ring? Because that was truly a coded (laughs) message. All right, time for some news here. The headline reads, Michelangelo and the spirituality are calling your office. Yeah. Apparently, Michelangelo was a proto-Lutheran, didn't even know it. Um, this is actually from a link off of the Cronach blog website. That's uh, Gene Edward Veith's, uh blog. It's really a good one. You should link to it if you don't already get the RSS feed. So the, uh, the this uh, the, this story reads this. So PBS's Secret of the Dead... Uh, this evening featured a fascinating program on Michelangelo rooted specifically in the theory of Italian art historian Antonio Forcellino that Michelangelo was a member of an informal 16th century reform movement called the the Spirituali. My Italian really stinks here. While studying Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses, part of the tomb of Julius II, uh, Forcellino began to notice certain, quote, anomalies that gave him pause. Further research, especially in the Vatican archives, led uh, to the relationship between Michelangelo and Cardinal Reginald Pohl, Cardinal Urkel Gonzaga, and Vittoria Colonna, who was a noblewoman, what these folks had in common was a desire to reform the Catholic Church from within. In fact, Pohl's views on justification, like Gaspar Contarini's, bears a striking resemblance to Luther's, although not identical to it. Uh, Forcellino believes a tortured, conflicted Michelangelo began to ask the question that seemed to be in the air in the 16th century. That was, what must I do to be saved? Grace cannot be purchased, Michelangelo wrote to Colonna in light of um, the indulgences controversy and influenced by spirituality and the Christocentric discussions of reform and renewal. The work of Il Maestro began to focus increasingly on Christ and a direct relationship with God rather than on the institutional church its clergy, and its sacraments. By 1547, Pole, then a, pa- a papal governor in northern Italy, was at the center of a network 
of reform-minded clergy, laity, and artists. They were educated, wealthy, sympathetic to many of the same concerns as the Protestants, although they themselves were not Protestants. Paul was seen as a man who could bridge the divide between Rome and the reformers. Michelangelo, a member of the network, began to produce images that mirror these ideas, say one scholar in the Secrets documentary. Uh, but the spirituality began making the authorities nervous, and Cardinal Carafa, a nobleman from Naples, became Pope uh, Paul III's top heresy hunter, Inquisitor General for Rome, and he despised anything that smacked of Lutheranism, and to him the spirituality were secret Lutherans. And that included, believe it or not, Michelangelo. Carafa denounced the master painter's second coming of Christ, not only because of the rampant nudity, but also because it focused too much on man and his relation to to Christ and not to the church. Interesting. With Gonzaga and Paul relatively protected because of their high status, Carafa went after Vittoria Colonna's favorite preacher, uh, Bernardino Ocino, and other lesser-known reform-minded Italians. Ocino fled to Switzerland. They want to reform the church starting with my death. Now I can't uh, take off the mask and speak the truth, he later wrote to Colonna, who strangely uh, betrayed him and turned the letter over to Carafa, which inflamed his mission to stamp out heresy pushing the spirituality uh, the spirituality underground according to the program the benefits of Christ's death would be the lasting work of the spirituality, the supreme expression of their belief that reform of the church meant a focus on Christ and the cross. While good works are important, justification by faith is the key to salvation. The church, its clergy, and its sacraments, again, are nowhere to be found. So apparently, Michelangelo, according to this PBS uh, series that, uh, program that was out called The Secrets of the Dead, was a member of an underground group of reformed-minded Catholics who believed in justification by grace through faith, and they wanted a Christocentric, cross-centric reform of the church. This is very interesting. So I think that's worth the read. Anyway, I just wanted to pass that along to you because, well, apparently... um, Uh, the whole i think that's more interesting than the illuminati and the uh, and the so-called angels and demons theory that uh dan brown you know because that movie just came out over the weekend all right for those of you out there uh, this is this falls into the category of end times prophetic interesting information and we pass it along just because uh now that i'm considered to be a potential uh, uh domestic terrorist in the United States because I am pro-life, because um, I am in favor of smaller government, I'm not a socialist, and uh, I, own a, I own several weapons, and I believe in end times prophecy. This is the type of information that now, as, as somebody who could potentially be a, uh, a, a terrorist in the United States, according to the uh, Obama administration and their misuse of Department of Homeland Security, I feel beholden to pass this type of information along. Uh, from last week, we read, a killer chip tracks human uh, humans and releases poison. This is an RFID chip uh, that uh, somebody had uh, uh, filed for a patent in Germany. This is by Jay Baggert of WorldNet Daily. We read, you can run, but you cannot hide. And if you try, one push of a button will cause a lethal dose of poison to immediately begin flowing through your body. (laughs) I wish this was science fiction, but this is not. 
That's the Orwellian future a Saudi Arabian inventor was seeking to bring to Germany until the nation's patent office announced last week that it was rejecting his request to patent what has been dubbed the killer chip. This should make us all a little bit nervous that such a technology exists and that anyone wants to apply, you know, and you know, put stuff like this into practice. The tiny semiconductor device is intended to be surgically implanted or injected into the body, according to the patent application, for the purpose of tracking visitors from other nations by global positioning satellites and preventing them from overstaying their visas. A German patent and trademark office spokeswoman told Deutsche Press. Uh, Agentur, the inventor's application entitled Implantation of Electronic Chips in the Human Body for the Purpose of Determining Its Geographical Location, was submitted in October of 2007 and then published 18 months later as required by law in a patents database. Under Germany's patent law, inventions that are unethical or a danger to the public are not recognized. In recent times the number of people uh, uh, sought by security forces has increased the jetta based inventor wrote in his application that is his patent application the device would emit encrypted radio waves that would be picked up by satellites and used to track fugitives from justice terrorists illegal immigrants criminals political opponents defectors domestic help and saudi arabians who don't return home from pilgrimages uh, Sweden's the local uh, reported. The application included a request to patent a Model B of the device that could uh, release poison to, quote, eliminate the individual if he or she became a security risk. Quote, I apply for these reasons and for the reasons of state security and the security of citizens, the statement reads. German law allows for foreigners to apply for patents in the country, uh, though a local representative in the case of the killer chip, a Munich law firm, was used. Most people apply for patents in several countries, and this inventor probably did, as Stephanie Kruger of the Patent Office said. And that leaves open the possibility the Saudi inventor will find success for receiving his patent in another country. There you have it. Um, Saudi Arabian guy, in the name of security, has invented an RFID chip that would uh, be used to track people using global positioning satellites, and if you become a security threat, it would inject you with a lethal toxin that would kill you. Isn't that great? The future, it looks so bright. Oh, boy. All right. When we when we come back, we're going to dive into our sermon review is the sermon. Uh, the name of the sermon series is called Potential. And the reason I picked it is because, uh, well, Sean Lovejoy happens to be the leader of a church planting network. And uh, I consider him to be. Uh, the boss, at least his church is the one responsible for such men as Gary Lamb and um, and Tad Grandstaff, who we reviewed sermons here before. And so we're going to take a look at what the mothership is doing uh, with uh, with by looking at this potential sermon from Sean Lovejoy. And unfortunately, um, I kid you not, it's going to take six pages of Bible to undo what he's done wrong. So if you're looking for some good Bible teaching, stay tuned for our uh, our sermon review today. Unfortunately, it's not going to be coming from Todd, uh, from uh, Sean Lovejoy. It's It's got to come from me. So we got lots of ground to cover here. And so, uh, by the way, if you'd like to email me, you can at... Um 
talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. If you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, you can do that too. Look me up. My name is Chris Roseborough. If you would like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter, you can do that as well. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. It is sermon review time here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And this particular sermon you definitely want to stay tuned for. Why? Because I think it represents one of the major false teachings going on in American Christianity today. Definitely you need to stay tuned because we've got to pick this one apart. And we're going to do a quite a thorough job of it. That being the case, it's time to dive into our sermon review segment, which means it's time for the sermon review music. Cue it up, maestro. That's right. Our sermon review music is uh, from that spaghetti western known as The Good the bad and the ugly written by Hugo Montenegro by the way so today's sermon is entitled potential and this is a quintessential example of a man-centered off-topic biblical sermon Sean Lovejoy does uh, actually quote the Bible here, but the problem is is that he misses the whole point, and he's not dealing in biblical categories. Nope. He's dealing in success categories, whether or not you have potential. And so we're going to actually take the time today in this particular sermon to pick it apart. It's only 33 minutes long, but with these six pages of biblical commentary that we're going to have to bring to bear here... 
in that single space, 12-point font, by the way. You don't want to miss it. All right. I've had enough of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's get on to the sermon review, all right? <laughs> okay, so without any further ado, this is Sean Lovejoy, the his church. I think it's Mountain Lake Church, and it's in Georgia. I've been there, and he's part of this church planting network thing. And like I said, I consider him to be the boss, the guy who's responsible uh, for men like Gary Lamb and Tad Grandstaff. So uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Sean Lovejoy. From Alabama, what can I say? <laughs> hey, good morning. Morning. Hey, I hope you're ready today. I hope you're ready to hear from God. We're kicking off our new series today, Unleashing the Real Total Potential in Our Lives and Realizing It Personally, Corporately, as a Church. And we're Okay, got to stop there. Unleashing the Potential? This, we're not dealing in Christian doctrinal categories at this point. Already, we are off the reservation. Christianity is not about unleashing your potential, either corporately or individually. It's not. Christianity, in fact, what did Christ tell us to do? To go and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to make something really clear. If you don't understand the problem biblically, that God has called the church and for us to address, it's the problem that Christ addressed on the cross, then you don't even know what Christianity is about. And I know I'm being hard on Sean. I've met Sean. We've talked. We email from time to time. And I'm being hard on him because the wounds of a friend, let me tell you, are much better than the kisses of an enemy. At this point, we are off the reservation. Nowhere in the writings of the church fathers Nowhere in Christian history, nor in the Bible, do we find the category of unleashing your potential. In fact, as sinners, we have no potential. We are dead in trespasses and sins. The church is called to proclaim Christ and him crucified for sins. It's not Christ and him crucified so that you can, you can maximize your potential or experience your potential, either corporately or whatever. We're called to go and proclaim the gospel. Which means that God doesn't look at people and go, you know, I think that person has a lot of potential. No, none of us. We're all sinners. We're, none of us has a potential, at least not when it comes to the kingdom of God. Until we are raised from the dead, until we are regenerated, until God literally gives us faith, we have no kingdom potential whatsoever. And Christianity is not about helping you experience potential. And as you hear this sermon develop, unfortunately... Uh, we're going to have to say that what Sean is saying absolutely contradicts a biblical understanding of our life and our vocation and how we serve God. Let's continue. We're going to be take, doing this by examining a, one of the coolest guys, my favorite guy in the Bible. I've never done a message series on this guy. We're going to be talking a ton over the next three weeks about Abraham. And we're going to be learning a lot about how to unleash our potential by examining his life. Never done a series on him. Okay, uh, we're going to learn a lot about un, how to... Uh, tap into our potential or unleashing our potential by looking at Abraham's life? Oh, boy. All right. I'm going to have to do this out of order. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to front load this a little bit here. And the reason why is because you have to understand biblically when, when um, we look at Abraham's life, 
there's a very specific aspect to Abraham's life that God wants us to look at. And it has nothing to do with unleashing his potential. Okay? Nothing to do with unleashing his potential. It has to do with faith. Faith. Now, I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3. Remember, Galatians was written to, uh, the letter to the, the epistle to the Galatians was written to a church that was gone off, had gone off the reservation. They had added works righteousness through the keeping of certain Mosaic laws to Christianity. And by, and by thus doing so, they canceled it out. It, it, no longer, it, no, it was no longer a gospel. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, You who would be justified by the law, you have been alienated by, from Christ and you have fallen from grace. Now, in this epistle, Paul points us to under, a, a correct understanding of understanding uh, Abraham's life. Now, understand something. Abraham's life is recorded in the Old Testament for very specific reasons. Uh, do you think that Abraham was the only person living back in in his day? Were there not many people that God could have written about? That God could have had their lives recorded in the scriptures? Why is it that we really only hear the story of Abraham? He wasn't even a king. He was just some ordinary guy, right? Why is his story recorded instead of somebody else's? The reason why is because the scriptures are not about us. They're about Christ. Remember back, I'm going to answer this question. Remember back in in, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapters, whoops, sorry, I'm flipping over there on my computerized Bible and I was on word search rather than verse search, okay? Remember in Genesis chapter 3, we've got this terrible story. Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. This isn't mythology, this is history, all right? They are, why do, how do I know that? Because Jesus said it was history. He believed the story as if it was history, literal history, Okay? So what happened is, is the, the, the Satan comes in the form of a snake, deceives Eve and Adam. They rebel against God and they eat the fruit they were told not to eat. Right? So then we've got man now in the sinful and fallen state. And we pick up the story, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And uh, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to me uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Listen to that. This is what they call the proto-gospel here. God, in dealing with Satan, says, I will put enmity between you and 
and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay. So right there, we have the fall of man and God saying that he is going to do something definitive. Okay. Now, Eve, when she gives birth to her first son, she thinks she's given birth to the Messiah. Genesis chapter 4. Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And if you really look at this carefully from the Hebrew, I mean, she really thinks that she's, she's you know, that this is the one that was promised by God to come and crush the head of the serpent. But it wasn't to be. Okay? He turned out to be wicked and evil beyond repair. So why is is Abraham listed in the scripture? I mean, you got Noah, you got Abraham, you got... Basically, scripture doesn't follow the history of the world. The history of the world is kind of happening in the background of the biblical stories because the Bible is not about the history of the world. It's not even the history of Abraham. It's the history of following that scarlet thread through history to where we come in the New Testament with the opening verses of the book of, of, of the Gospel of Matthew saying, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Moving forward to verse 14, we read, And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. The story of Abraham is important in this sense. It is through Abraham that Christ comes. And Abraham is a man of faith, not of great potential. God doesn't look at Abraham and go, you know, I could really do something with that guy. No, the story of Abraham is written specifically in regards to the fact that it's about Christ. The story of Abraham is the story of Christ because Christ comes through Abraham. And we pick up his story and we interpret it in that sense. Now, look at how Paul in the book of Galatians deals with the story of Abraham. He doesn't say anything about Abraham's great potential. This is a stupid American concept here, and it's bordering on heresy at this point. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. The answer to the question is by hearing with faith. They didn't receive the Spirit of God because they kept works of the law. Paul says that in verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
The biblical category, especially New Testament, in light of the cross, is understanding that Abraham, even in his generation, looked forward to the cross, and it was his son who was the son of promise. And God, in Abraham, believed God, he had faith, he trusted in God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is an imputed righteousness, not of his own, and has nothing to do with his great potential, or the fact that God had a big vision for his life. No, au contraire. Verse 7, Now know then that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith of, uh, uh, are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The biblical category is the faith of Abraham. You are a child of Abraham, when you have faith and trust in Christ alone, not your own works for salvation. God reckons your faith to you as righteousness the same way he reckoned Abraham's faith as righteousness. And that faith is a gift from God. You don't go back and read the story of Abraham and say, you know, God had, you know, saw great potential in him and had a big plan for his life. You are off the Bible at this point, even if you're Quoting the Bible, you're off topic. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Did you catch that? Verse 14, Galatians 3 says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. You want the blessing of Abraham? It comes to us by faith. And what is that blessing? The forgiveness of sins and the the imputed righteousness of God. That's the important thing to focus on if you're going to focus on Abraham. If you're going to preach about Abraham as having great potential and God having a big vision for his life, you're you're missing the point. To give a human example, verse 15, Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, it doesn't say, and to offsprings, or seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, that's your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. This is the biblical category in dealing with Abraham, that by faith we are Abraham's offspring. It's not those who are genetically related to Abraham that are his offspring that that are important. It's those who are of the same faith of Abraham, those who trust God and who, who that faith God credits as righteousness. I bring that up because at this point... Um, Sean is really off the reservation. We continue. So I'm pumped up about this. I've had this date targeted for months. Just some cool things God began to show me and teach me. Some things that I want to say to you guys. Some things I want to say as a church. And I'm fired up about beginning to talk about this today. And whether you realize it or not, Abraham, historically, biblically speaking, even from a human history perspective, is probably only second in importance to Jesus in biblical and human history. Some of you guys know this, but all major world religions, including Christianity, but not limited to, trace their descendancy back to Abraham as the father of their descendants all through time. Christianity does that as well. We read his human story, his historical story in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. But then what's cool is that every time God shows up to somebody and speaks to them through the rest of the Old Testament, he always begins by saying, I'm the God of, guess who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's literally how God refers to himself from then on throughout history. Then you get to the New Testament. Eleven New Testament books reference Abraham and his great faith, the faith chapter in Hebrews 11. Right. They reference his great faith. And who was his faith in? His great God and Savior. That's the point. You're taking the big thing, Sean, and you're making it small, and you're taking something that is appealing and mythological and trumpeting that above what the Bible teaches regarding Abraham. Is a lot about Abraham. Jesus quotes and refers to Abraham. Then the book of Romans tells us that we all, you and I, are descendants of Abraham. We can trace our heritage Back as humans and more so importantly as Christians back to Abraham. So would you say this? But how, Sean, how? Let me fill in the blank for you. Okay. In the, in the, for the sake of context, let me uh, help you out here, Sean. The thing that you should be preaching on is the thing you're not preaching on. So let me do it for you. Romans chapter three, we always believe in context, context, and context. Um, is where we pick up on this idea that we are all sinners and none of us is righteous. And then in Romans chapter 4 is when you begin to see this discussion in the book of Romans regarding Abraham. Let me bring that up. By the way, Galatians 3, we already said that those of us who have the same faith as Abraham are Abraham's offspring. So it's those who trust in Christ by faith 
by grace through faith alone those are the abraham those are abraham's offspring romans chapter 3 verse 9 what then are we jews any better off well not at all for we've already charged that both jews and greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. Uh, their mouth is full of curse and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their path are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, so much for having great potential. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, pretty much destroys this myth that God looks at us and has great potential lined up for us. It doesn't exist. We're all sinners, wretched. None of us seeks after God by nature. Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let me read 20 again. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That is declared righteous in God's sight because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The primary purpose of the law is to show you your sin. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the, the one who declares to those who would be righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that no one that that one is that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Now we're up to Romans 4. All of that was context. Salvation by grace through faith. The purpose of the law is to show you your sin. Romans 4 now picks up on a discussion regarding Abraham. Well, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And so, and the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham's righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
it was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. To make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but because of the righteousness of faith for if the if the adherents of the law uh for if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be heirs faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath but where there is no law there is no transgression that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring and not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about uh, about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of sarah's womb no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of god but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to god fully convinced that god was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised uh, who raised from the dead jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification so here's the deal if you're going to biblically preach on Abraham, the biblical categories are Abraham's faith and that he was justified by faith. And in fact, if you want to throw in Hebrews 11 here, Hebrews 11 makes it real clear. Listen to this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had his, has that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the immeasurable grains by the, by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking that the land from which they had gone out, they would have had only opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So if you're going to preach about Abraham, the biblical categories are his faith, his faith, his trust in God, despite all of the things around him that saying there's no way that this can happen, he trusted in God. He trusted in God. And what does it say? He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And those of us who have faith and trust in Christ for our salvation, just like Abraham, are Abraham's offspring. Not those who are genetically related to Abraham, but those who have the same faith as Abraham. That's the correct biblical categories to be dealing with Abraham. Not that he had such great potential. guy probably realized a lot of potential with his life. Would you agree? The question is, how? How did he unleash the potential in his life and what can we learn from him about unleashing the potential in our lives? So my question for you... Again, got to point out here the story of Abraham is not about unleashing potential. It's about his faith. Sean, you are off the biblical reservation. You are off track you today is this. Are you ready? Are you ready to unleash your potential? I said, are you ready to unleash your potential? Okay, let's do it. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. If you got your worship guides, we put it there. We put it on the screens. Some of you guys know that Abraham was first named Abram. The name Abram just means father. It means dad. He was just a man. He was just a dad. He was just a simple guy. There's really nothing extraordinary about him. That is, until he entered a personal relationship with the one true God. And it's in the context of that relationship 
God begins to speak to him. In fact, he appears in a vision to Abram one day while he's hanging out in his tent. Now, we don't know what he was doing in his tent. He may have been praying. He might have been taking a nap or reading the Babylonian journal. I don't know exactly what he was doing. But he was hanging out in his tent one afternoon, and God shows up and speaks to him through a vision. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Afterward the Lord spoke to Abraham, or Abram, as he was called back then, in a vision. And I want you to just take your pens right now. you got my permission. I don't care what your grandma says. You mark in your Bible. Circle the word vision. Okay? Afterward the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision. You know, you need to go back, Sean, and you need to have everybody walk through all of the passages to talk about the faith of Abraham and have them underline the word faith. Faith, 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 faith. Abraham believed God. That counts as faith. And and one word, vision, you're taking a word completely out of context. And said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. Why would he say that? Because every time God appeared to somebody in Scripture, they didn't want to go jump up in his lap. It scared them to death. All right? They were overwhelmed by the holiness of God. Okay? Don't be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and... Your reward will be what? I want you to circle that word. Great. It's going to be big. It's going to be explosive. Abraham's Abram's hanging out in his tent and God comes and speaks to him. And he basically says this, Abram, I've got a vision for your life. Now that's significant because by the way, (laughs) we can only get vision from God. Whoa, 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 that was a biblical sleight of hand there, dude. Oh, boy. Um, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield, and your reward shall be great. But Abraham said, oh, Lord, wait a second. God didn't come to him and say, I have a great vision for you. The text says that Abraham had a vision, an ecstasis, if you would. That's not, if this is Hebrew, but that's, that would be, if this was in the Greek, it would be ecstasis, meaning to stand outside of oneself. Sean, you just twisted God's word here by saying that God has a great vision for Abraham. That's not how the word is used in the text. Vision is something that can only be revealed to us by God. Okay, it's so important that we latch on to that. Vision is always something God only can give us in our lives. And that's so important we latch on to that concept. God wasn't giving Abraham a vision for his life. God appeared to Abraham in a vision. There's a difference here, Sean. Because vision is such a misunderstood concept in our culture. Man, everybody's got a vision these days. Every organization's got a vision. Every church has got a a, a vision for their lives or for their organization. I'm just curious. How many of you guys, the, the latest way of accomplishing this, means and tools for accomplishing vision, is something called vision boards? How many of you guys just by any chance have heard of vision boards? All right, it's sort of becoming more and more popular out there. Oprah's talked about it. That's why I thought all y'all knew about it. Um, Tony Robbins, other motivational speakers, self-help guys, guys who are sort of vision uh, leaders out there in the industry. The idea of a vision board is that you literally take a physical board of some kind and you put it on your wall at home, in your office, 
your dorm, whatever it might be, and you begin to think about what your vision is, all right? Where you want to be in 10 years, all right? What you want to be when you graduate, all right? When you want to get out of debt. <laughs> um, you know, what you want to do for a living. When you want to retire. You know, when you want to buy a lake home and live on the lake. Whatever it might be, all right? You come up, you write it down, and you stick it physically, literally, on your vision board. And the idea is that if you envision it and you think about it, but then you write it down and you look at it every day, that that in and of itself will help you accomplish the vision. Here's the challenge I have with believing that. Because everybody I know these days, frankly, has a great vision. I've never met a a company that had a bad vision. I've never met a church that had a non-biblical vision. The truth is, though, the... Oh, I know a ton of them. They think that they can invent their own. A lot of the seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches, they've invented their own mission and vision statements, forgetting the fact that Christ himself alone is the one who can give us the mission and the vision for the church. If you don't know what they are, read Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them everything, all that I have commanded you. And Luke 24, 46, and well, maybe 47, 48, and Christ said, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached and proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The problem with these seeker-driven guys is they think that they can invent their own mission and vision statements and that justifies what they're doing as if every little church is its own little uh, sub-franchise or uh, its own little branded uh, company. And they get to invent their own mission and vision statements. A lot of these churches are way off track. The problem with most of us is not having a vision. Everybody's got a vision these days. The truth is, though, very few people are making any movement in accomplishing that vision. Would you agree with that? Why is that? What's the deal? What are you talking about? I know a lot of successful people don't have any problems setting goals for themselves and and taking the steps to make them happen. Why are we failing so miserably? We dream these big dreams. We have these big visions, but they're not being accomplished personally. This is the big problem that faces humanity, that we have these big dreams and visions, but they're not being accomplished. How about sinfulness? How about our wretched sinful condition before a just God? How about Christ shed blood on the cross to propitiate God's wrath and is to atone for our sins? Or corporately. What's the deal? What's the problem? Well, here's the deal. You know what our vision for our life is? Just another good idea. Just another good idea. You ever had a good idea? Of course you have. That's why most of us are in debt up to our eyeballs. Because we had a good idea one day at the mall. Or we had a good idea for a new product, a new company, a new this, a new that. A new, a new, uh, we had a good idea of something that might look good on us or something that would look good, good if we drove it or lived in it. And so we had this good idea, this dream out there, and it's caused more failure associated with our life because it was just a good idea. And I, I just want to suggest to you today is we don't need another good, late, great, good idea for our lives to accomplish the true potential of our lives. In fact, I would suggest to you today that accomplishing and realizing the true potential in our lives is only going to happen as we understand the difference between a good idea and a God idea. And where is that listed in the Scripture? 
It's not found in Genesis chapter 15 anywhere in the story of Abraham. It's not. There is, there's no tips in the scripture for determining a good idea versus a God idea. We don't need any more good ideas. What we need is some God ideas. And the Bible is very clear about this. One of the most famous verses on vision, but I'll be honest with you, I've heard pastors and Christian CEOs take this verse out of context. Like you just twisted uh, the opening verses to Genesis 15. It was, it's no longer Abraham had a vision and God appeared to him in a vision. and that, Instead, it was God appearing to give him a vision for his life. You twisted it completely, 180 degrees backwards. For their lives, their churches, their organizations. Proverbs 29, 18, a lot of you guys are familiar with the King James Version translation of it where it says, without a vision, people what? They perish. I love the way the New International Version translates it because it's closer to, the, to, to representing God's heart. Well, good. I'm glad to hear, uh, Sean, that you have a concept of, not, of tw- Bible twisting and of understanding, you know, trying to seek what it is that God's Word says in context. This will make this little exercise a little bit easier for you because I'm going to show you again that you are way off the reservation. It says where there is no revelation. The word vision in the Bible is literally translated from the word revelation. In other words, vision is something only God can give us. All right? And if we don't have a God... Okay, you're twisting the word again, Sean. In a vision, God appears to Abraham. In a vision, in a revelation... He doesn't show up to give Abraham a vision. God appears to him in a vision. You're twisting the passage. Even the one that you just quoted to, quote, correct the problem is still very problematic, and you're not handling God's word correctly. Oh, boy. Uh, Makaze. Makaze. Okay, just, you know, want to make sure I got this. Makaze means vision. Hang on a second. Doing a little bit of uh, Hebrew work here. Vision in an ecstatic state. Yeah. So, okay. Genesis 15.1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, in an ecstasis. Makazi is, is the Hebrew version of this, and it means an ecstatic vision or dream. Okay. God didn't show up to give Abraham a vision. God appeared to Abraham in a vision or in a dream. God didn't show up to give him a dream. He showed up in the dream. You're twisting it still. Given vision for our lives, look what the writer of Proverbs says. I love this. This is so true. Where there is no God-given vision, no revelation, the people cast off restraint. We're unbridled. And what do we do? We run off half-cocked. We get drunk on vision. We make bad choices, bad decisions, and we run from one good idea to another good idea to another good idea, and most of them fail. And I just want to see... Hey, you know, um, is the problem that humanity faces that they're chasing after good ideas and then failing at them, or is it that they're rebellious against a, a, a holy God? suggest to you to reach our God-given potential, we've got to receive a God-given vision. So, so in order to re- re- reach our God-given potential, we have to be given a God-given, a, a God-given vision or, oh man, 
That's why it's so important, going back to last series where we talked about be inspired and reading God's Word and listening to Him speak to us through His Word, being still enough and long enough for quiet enough that we can hear that still small voice speak into our lives. We don't need a good idea. Uh, Sean, are you teaching these people mysticism? Uh, If I hear the, the passage from 1 Kings 19 ripped out of context again, I'm probably going to freak out They're just just because it'll it'll be very primal and it'll help me therapeutically. <clears throat> Folks, in First Kings chapter 19, this is where we hear that phrase, still small voice. Nowhere in the scriptures are we instructed to, quote, be still and listen for the still small voice, nor are we told to listen for that still small voice or whatever. We're told to read the word of God. Let me show you 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. This is, by the way, is right after uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. That whole incident, how things went down there, you know, with the prophets of Baal, you know, dead, you know, God rains down fire. Right after that event, it's not as if uh, Elijah, you know, went out and did the, the, the talk show circuit and everyone going, wow, you know, that was pretty cool how your God answered and and that, you know, the prophets of Baal, you know, they made fools of themselves and you kind of taunted and mocked them. No, he was on the run after that. Listen to this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel wants Elijah's life. Of course, you know, since Baal didn't answer, did she go, well, maybe Elijah is right. No, she didn't. She didn't repent. So then he was afraid, arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. And the, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank, and he went in, in the strength of the food for forty days and forty nights to, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it into pieces, the rocks before the Lord. Now, I want to point something out to you. Nowhere is this, is, does it say that this passage is somehow um, normative, okay? Notice that this is an event from Elijah's life. This is God speaking to Elijah. He told Elijah that the Lord was going to pass by. 
So before you start talking about that still small voice, first I want to hear about the rocks exploding. If you think that this is somehow some verse that, t- that tells you how God's going to speak to you, you're wrong. You want to know how God's going to speak to you? Open your Bible and start reading it and comprehending what is there. We continue. All right. And the rock and uh, the rocks broke in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that, the sound of a low whisper or the still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Notice that the Lord was passing by. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So this passage in 1 Kings 19 does not, cannot, does not teach us that the way we listen for God is we listen for that still small voice. I got news for you. If you think that God is going to speak to you that way, 99.9% of the time you're fooling yourself. You need to open up your Bible and learn how to hear God's voice in his word. And when he wants to speak to you, he'll speak to you in a way that you can hear it and it's unmistakable. This is this idea that God can speak to you in the still small voice in there quoting this. It's just quoted out of context and it's teaching mysticism. It's focusing you off of God and his word and onto yourself and somehow that God's supposed to speak to you directly and give you some kind of vision for your life. Really, what kind of vision is God supposed to give to you? Do you think you yourself to be maybe one of those secret superheroes? Do you think that maybe, just maybe, you know, like the, the television show Heroes, you have some special secret superpower that God's going to use to save the world? That you're going to make this huge impact? Is that what you think? you just dissatisfied with your ordinary cubicle-dwelling life? Your ordinary diaper-changing, um, snotty-nose-cleaning-upping life? So you want something bigger and grander? This is called delusions of grandeur. And it's a smack in the face of God who has given you work to do. Let's continue, because I want to take that, get to that point in context in the sermon. We need to hear from God, and that is His goal for your life and my life. It's not reserved for pastors, priests, and monks. All right, It's for everybody, everybody, every child of His. He wants to speak to you, meet you, reveal His potential, His vision for your life. But Where does it say that in the Scriptures, please? Sean, the still small voice verse doesn't count. I already showed how it's taken out of context. Where does it say in the scripture that God wants to meet with you and show you the potential he has for your life? What are you talking about? But Abraham even shows us, it's encouraging to know that even when we get a vision from God, it doesn't naturally come to fruition in our lives. And I want us to look at that as well. Look at verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2. It says, but Abram replied... Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since I don't have a son, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no children, so one of my servants will have to be my heir. 
That's his pity party. What's yours? Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to him, No, 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 no. Your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own to inherit everything I'm going to give you. And then the Lord brought Abram outside beneath the night sky, and he told him, Look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that. Too many to count. God comes to Abram and begins to reveal this big vision for Abram's life. He says, look, you're going to have a son, but not just a son. Okay, I'm going to stop here. going to stop here. Hold on a second. This big plan for Abram's life? What's the big plan again? That he's going to have a son? People have been doing that forever. So the big plan, the big vision is that he's going to have a kid? Sean, the issue here is not the big plan is that he's going to have a kid. The issue here, the big plan, is that God is going to come in human flesh as a descendant of Abraham, the promised seed from Genesis chapter 3, and is going to die for the sins of the world. It's really not Abraham's it's not the vision for Abraham's life, so to speak. It's Christ. So the big plan is that he had a, he had a baby. Uh, my wife's had three of them. Son. You're going to have a special son. Kings are going to come from this son. Nations are going to come from... From this son. In fact, he goes on to tell Abram later, all the nations and the people of the world will be blessed through your son. Now, we all as parents, we know what it's like to think our kid is the prodigy, don't we? We went yesterday and uh, signed our, uh, my daughter up uh, for Bennett Park and cheerleading this fall. I can tell you right now, my daughter is the most beautiful cheerleader there. I mean, I can't help it. Nothing against your child, they're just not as pretty. All right? Don't you think the same thing? And I know all of us dads, we think our son's going to play Division One SEC baseball or soccer, football. We always think our kids are the best. But we couldn't even dream one up this big. Here's God saying to Abraham, man, your, your child is going to be special. And he does something extraordinary, brilliant, genius, to help Abraham really grasp on to how big this vision really is for his life. Go back and look at verse 5. God literally calls Abram outside of his tent. He's been speaking to him in a vision inside of his tent. He calls him outside of his tent. And he says in verse 5, Look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that. Too many to count. I love this because God proves that he was the one who invented vision boards. He gives Abram a visual of his vision for his life. He's a- I want to point something out to hear you. <clears throat> hey, um, <clears throat> Sean, here's the problem. Abraham is well past uh, the age to have children. His wife is well past the age to have children. This isn't a vision board statement where if you think about it, you have positive thoughts and it'll come. Nothing to that effect. God is promising and God's the one who's going to make it possible. In fact, 
you could even make the case that one of the reasons why God waited so long before they before Sarah would give birth to Isaac is so that it was clear that this was a miraculous child who was in the line of the one promised seed and that it was clearly God who was at work what did Abraham do to deserve this nothing how did he make it come about he didn't he was just on the receiving end of a promise and that promise doesn't apply equally to all of us. I Last time I checked, I don't know anybody that God's appeared to here in the 21st century where he's made similar promises. He can't because the Jesus has already come. This is about Christ, not about some grand vision that God has for Abraham's life. By the way, the big blessing is Jesus. The big vision is Jesus. He says, look, I, I, I want to give you a visual image of what I'm talking about. I want you to grab, I want you to look up. Look up at the stars. And I want you to start trying to count them, Abram. And when you run out of numbers, I want you to begin to grasp. That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. Now, at the same time, I don't know if you caught something while we were reading that passage, but the whole time God's trying to give this great big vision and potential for his life out in the future, Abram seems a little bit harsh, a little bit frustrated, a little disgusted with God. Why is that? We're going to go back next week and talk about this more in detail. But this is not the first time God has made this promise of a child to Abram. All right? And here's the deal. At this point when God's revealing this vision to Abram, he is about 86 years old. All right? A little late to start a family. All right? Much less Sarah. I mean, I respect the man. That's a real man. At 86, think about starting a family. But to be honest with you, it, this is the second time God's made this promise. He was seven. You know, i got to say something here, Sean. Um, did, are, are you aware of verse 15, chapter 15, verse 6? Chapter 15, verse 6. You said his, his response was harsh. No, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. The same passage that's, that I just read from Romans chapter 4. The ultimate response was a response of faith. I believe you, God, and the promises that you are making. And it wasn't about this great potential that Abraham had for his life. What was the big superhero thing that he did? That, that Abraham did? Was he able to fly? Maybe, was he able to time transport and, and save the world from a nuclear bomb? No. 75, the first time God appeared to him and said he's going to have a son. And if you're Abram, God speaks to you and you're 75 and he says, I'm going to give you a son. You're like, God, we better get after this. I've already made funeral home arrangements. Come on. 11 years go by. 11 years, nothing happens. And that's where we can really relate to Abram. Because at this point, Abram begins to think, well, may, may, maybe, I, maybe that last vision I had was just, maybe that was something I ate before I went to sleep. Maybe I didn't hear God right. Maybe what he said is not going to happen after all. 
Maybe Eleazar, my, my servant, is going to end up getting all my inheritance. And he begins to disbelieve the vision. We can totally relate to Abram at that point, can't we? Because No, I can't. What's the big vision that God has given me for my life? Huh? God has made me a father. God has made me a husband. God has given me a job. And I faithfully work in those vocations. What's the grand vision? I I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. No clue whatsoever. A lot of us know what it's like to feel like we, we gain encouragement. We feel like we have this potential for our lives when we're young. We want to be the president, right? We want to be a fireman and save people. We want to be a policeman. We want, to, we want to be these things that help people or, or we have this vision for an organization or a project or we have this vision for our marriage and for our children and all these neat side of things. But then when it doesn't happen like we think it ought to happen or when we ought to think it happens, some amazing stuff begins to happen. In fact, here's what happens. In fact, in Ryan Seacrest's words, dim the lights. All right? Look at this. I, I love this because this is a great visual image. Here, this is what happens in our lives. At some point, guys, we have an, a visual image out there. The younger we are, the bigger dreams we tend to have. Isn't that true? We tend to have big dreams and big visions and see a big potential for our life when we're young. But the older we get, just like Abram, guess what inevitably happens to every vision? You grow up. You know, when I was a younger guy, I wanted to be president of the United States. I wanted to be an F-18 fighter pilot, too. And is my life any less pleasing to God? Because rather than being president of the United States or being an F-18 fighter pilot, I instead found work doing theological work and working at a medical registry and, and, the, and the jobs that I've done. I don't think so. Man, it takes a hit. It takes a blow. And when our visions take a blow, though, our temptation is for the vision begin to dim. When our visions take a blow, these are just delusions of grandeur that feed human sinful ego. This is ridiculous. And we begin to think, well, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm not up to the task. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe God's called you to something a little bit more realistic. Maybe I'm not sharp enough. Maybe I'm not good looking enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough. So the big problem is is that we have low self-esteem because we're not achieving our big visions for our life? You've got to be kidding me. Maybe I didn't hear God right. Maybe you didn't hear God at all. Maybe it was just a piece of undigested meat. And eventually it dims so much the vision just goes out. So that's the big problem. You're not, you're not being successful in, in the vision that you had for your life. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what's coming up here, and I want you to hear how Sean Lovejoy is about to, and he's going to do it, completely trash talk an ordinary life. And we're going to correct him from the scriptures, but listen, ordinary everyday life. And it's at that point, I have to be honest with you, that the vision for many of our lives in this room today has become this. Go to church. Go to work. 
go to school, go home and wash up, go back and do it the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and retire and die. And if we were totally brutally honest and we did a realistic assessment for many of our lives in this room, that is the vision for a lot of our lives. Okay, so what is he just trashing right there? Somebody who has a routine every week. They go to church, go to work, go home, go to school, wash up, go to work, go to home. As if that is somehow wrong. That that is not the vision that God has for your life. As if somehow God's big plan for your life is all about you single-handedly being used by God to change the world. Let me counter it with some realistic biblical passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 9, we read, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Yep, listen to that. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself, third person of the Holy Trinity, tells the Thessalonians, and by extension us, because we're all part of the same church, if you would, to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, and walk properly before outsiders. Yeah. Believe it or not, your job the, one, the big plan that God has for your life is for you to work and serve your neighbor in your vocations. That would include your job as a husband, as a mother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, as a student, as an employee. God wants you to quietly mind your own affairs and do work with your hands. If you're a father, go to work. It doesn't matter if you are a trash picker upper. It doesn't matter if you work at a sewage facility or if you work at a at a hospital on the cutting edge of medical technology. God is not going to look at the guy who's you know working on some, some kind of a cure for exotic diseases and say that guy I had a bigger plan for than the other guy. Because I got news for you. Without the people picking up the trash every week, the world would come to a grinding halt. If it wasn't for the guy who cuts the meat at the grocery store, if it wasn't for the the farmer, if it wasn't for these people out there that make our lives easier by distributing the load so that we don't have to... When was the last time you had to go and grow your own food Then you had to harvest your food. Then you had to take, let's say you were growing wheat. Then you had to grind it into flour and then bake it. And when was the last time you made your own clothes? Anyone out? I know there's some of you out there that, you know, that you enjoy making. My wife makes clothes. Actually, she's pretty good at it. But that's not a common thing anymore. That's kind of a lost art. And if you really needed to, you just go down to Kohl's, go down to Walmart, pick yourself up a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. 
You'd never be able to do the other stuff you had to do in your life if you had to make your own clothes, grow your own food, burn your own trash, and all this kind of stuff. It's hard work. And without all of these people serving us in their vocations, if I, I couldn't be sitting in front of this microphone today bringing you the word of God and bringing, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment if it wasn't for the farmer, if it wasn't for the guy who picks up the trash, if it wasn't for the guys out there working at the sewer, the sewer treatment plant, if it wasn't for the guys out there working at the, the electrical plant. Or the, all of these humble jobs, they're not humble at all. I am so thankful for these people. And when my, my wife and I had children... My wife jumped into the job that she was given by God as mom. And what did she do? She changed diapers. She fed. She burped. She bathed. She cleaned up barf. She cleaned up snotty noses. She kissed boo-boos. All of that stuff. Is that somehow... Now, that's not the vision that God had for her life? I don't think so. How can that not be the vision that God had for her life? Because children are from God. God is the one who made her a mother. God is the one who made me a father. And if I were to shirk my responsibility as a father or my wife to shirk her responsibility as a mother, who would have raised our children? Themselves? They're not puppies. But that required us to go to church, go to work, go home, clean up, go to school, get into the routine, check homework, all that stuff. Let me read some more passages. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six through twelve. We read Now we commend you command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night. With toil and labor, go to work, clean up, da 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 We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the, that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in, in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, working quietly, going to work every day, and earning your own living is exactly the vision that God has for your life. And if you don't like it, and you want to ascend the ladder, then go to school and do what it takes to ascend the ladder. But in the meantime, your work is to be done as if it is done to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 5, continuing through verse 20, we read, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in your sexual... In you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie with, uh, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
But here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which you were indeed called into one body, and be thankful. Let the word of the Lord dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. You catching the drift here? The God is not the God of delusions of grandeur, which is what he's calling vision. But God is the God who calls us to serve him where we're at. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only with their eye on you and and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Notice that Paul here isn't saying to slaves, you know, just have a bigger vision for yourself. Have a grander vision. Where was their big vision? Slaves? They didn't have one, did they? Instead, Paul tells them to serve the Lord in everything that they do. Whatever work is put in front of them, do it unto the Lord. This isn't about finding the potential in you. It's about understanding that God is using you where you are to serve your neighbor. And only in the eyes of men do we consider one thing to be greater than another. And when we look at things through the cross, that where there is no slave, no Greek, no Jew, no whatever, that all of us, we serve the Lord in where we're at, then we understand that work is a blessing from God. And it allows us to serve our neighbor where we're at, even in the most humble of circumstances. And God rewards that. He doesn't dishonor it and say, nope, you didn't live up to the vision that I had for you. And Sean Lovejoy in this sermon just put down the ordinary, quiet life of working. But the scriptures don't put it down. The scriptures praise it as the highest service to both God and neighbor. Big difference. What a shame. What a shame. You can turn the lights on. Now, that's where Abram is. That's where he was. The vision had died. The vision had gone out for Abram. And he had a hard time believing that what God wanted to happen was going to happen with his life. But here's the deal. We know in retrospect now, all these ceilings that Abram had placed on his potential were self-imposed ceilings. 
Self-imposed limitations. Self-imposed limitations. Ceilings upon his potential. Really? Self-imposed. The big promise was that he, his, uh, his offspring would be as numerous as the sands of the sea, or as the stars in the sky, and it was his own self-imposed limitations that prevented that from happening? You're not reading the text right, Sean. Based upon his preconceived ideas, his age, Sarah's age, the insurmountable odds of what he felt like God wanted him to do and do through him of it ever happening. You know what Abram teaches us? That the greatest ceilings on vision are our own ceilings. No, Abraham's story doesn't tell us anything of the sort. You have mangled the text. So many, so many times we think we're waiting on God to accomplish His vision in our lives. The truth is, most of the time, I believe He's waiting on us to believe big enough. What? Let me play that again, and then we'll compare and contrast this teaching with somebody else. Let me play this little segment one more time. His, his age, Sarah's age, the insurmountable odds of what he felt like God wanted him to do and do through him of it ever happening. You know what Abram teaches us? That the greatest ceilings on vision are our own ceilings. So many times we think we're waiting on God to accomplish His vision in our lives. The truth is, most of the time, I believe He's waiting on us to believe big enough. So God is waiting on us to believe big enough. Where is that found in the Bible, Sean? You know who you sound like? You know exactly who you sound exactly like? Joel Osteen. Let me play to you for you uh, just a sample of what it is that I'm talking about here. Joel Osteen, from his sermon entitled, hang on a second here, Increase Your Capacity to Receive. We listen. I want to talk to you today about increasing your capacity to receive. God has all kinds of great things in store for you. He has favor in your future like you've never imagined. He's got good breaks, new opportunities, the right people. God wants to take you places you've never even dreamed of. But here's the key. God is limited by our capacity to receive. For instance, if you have a one-gallon bucket, yet I have 50 gallons to give you, the problem is not with the supply. The problem is you don't have the capacity to receive. If you'd get rid of that small container and get something larger, then I could give you more. It's the same principle with God. If we think we've reached our limits, we think the economy's too bad, we're going to have a down year, we think we'll never get well, that's what the medical report says, never afford the house that we really want, it's not that God doesn't have the resources, it's not that He doesn't have the ability, the fact is, our container is too small. Sean sounds exactly like Joel Osteen. And so far, just by way of tallying up the scorecard here on this particular sermon, so far he's uh, completely mangled Genesis chapter 15, taking it out of context and having it teach something that it doesn't teach. Uh, He's taught mysticism, teaching us how to listen to the still small voice. He's dissed, dissed, absolutely dissed the quiet, working with your hands, and providing for yourself, which is exactly what the Bible says to do. 
And now he's saying that uh, that the problem that we have these self-imposed limitations put upon us because uh, we don't believe big enough, which is exactly the same garbage and heresy that Joel Osteen teaches. We continue with this sermon on potential. So far, it has none. In what he wants to do in us and through us as individuals, as organizations, especially as churches corporately. God has a bigger vision, a bigger dream out there, but we've limited ourselves. We've put ceilings on ourselves. What are your ceilings? Um, Sean, have you heard of the problem of sin? Just curious. By the way, you're teaching mythologies in our scratching, itching ears. You should read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Paul pr- predicted that this would happen. You are in rebellion to God's word. Is it your past? Is it how much you know about the Bible? Is it your education? Is it your experience? Is it your age? How, how young you are? Are you waiting till you get older to get God's vision? Is it because you're old and you feel like you've already missed it or you've already accomplished it all and all that's left is to die? I hope not. No, I aspire to work quietly with my hands and provide for myself and serve my neighbor in my vocation. Is there a problem with that, Sean? The Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with that. What's, what, what do I need? Is this, am I just settling? Do I need a bigger vision? What are your ceilings? Because I promise you, most of the ceilings on the vision for your life and my life are self-imposed ceilings. They are our own ceilings. But that's precisely why God called Abram outside. Out from under the ceiling. Out from under the tent. And he said, look up. I want you to get a bigger picture, a bigger vision for your life. No, he was a bigger vision for his life. Notice that Hebrews 11 says that he didn't even see it. He only saw it from far off. What? The promise. The one, you know, Jesus. For what I want to do you and through your people in the future. Then he even knew after this one encounter, and you would see this play out over several years. I challenge you to go back and read through Genesis in our Bible reading guides. But God goes on in Genesis chapter 17. Because he knew vision would leak with Abram, he literally renames him at that point. He changes his name. Vision would leak? Name from Abram. Read Hebrews 11 again, Sean. Which means father to Abraham. Which means father of many nations. Because he literally wanted Abraham to be reminded every time someone called his name, Abram, Abraham, you still got what it takes. You still got potential. I'm still at work in your life. And every afternoon when Sarah would call him home for supper out of the fields, he was reminded, God's still at work. I'm not done. I've still got potential. Man, can I just tell you that this is satanic. He still has potential? Give me a break. It's God who's the one who fulfilled the promise, not Abraham or Sarah. Potential for what? Just to receive the promises of God. I need to be reminded sometimes I got still got potential. I hear those voices that say you're not good enough. You're not, Sean. You are a wretched sinner. And you need a Savior, and you need to preach about Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Not this, you have great potential crap. Because that's what this is. It's scubalon. Look it up. 
and you're done and you're the lid and you're not up to it. You can't be what God wants you to be. You can't do everything God wants you to do. You're not worthy. You're incapable. You ever hear those voices? Yeah, from Joel Osteen. It's satanic and it's heretical. I think all of us from time to time just need to hear someone say as an instrument of God, hey, you've got what it takes. You've got potential. You have what it takes. You've got potential. That's the message of Scripture. No, it is not. This, this is this is 180 degrees wrong. Let's talk about potential here. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, in which you used to live, in which you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. For all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, not because of any potential we have, because God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ, in order that the coming ages that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And what are those good works? Working quietly with your hands, changing diapers, working in a cubicle, being a good mom, being a good dad, being a good son, being a good daughter. Those are the good works that we've been called to do, not the grand vision of delusional grandeur. Yesterday I had Paul, my four-year-old son, down on the floor doing push-ups. That's how we punish him. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Give me ten. No, I was, I was exercising yesterday at home, and he saw me working out. And he, co- he comes over to me, and he says, Daddy, watch this. And he gets down, and he does about four push-ups. Yeah, he's a prodigy. But, but as he's doing that, you know why? You know, why, why do they come up to you and elbow you and want you to say, Daddy, watch. Daddy, watch. Mama, watch. They ever do that to you? Why? They want to hear you say, you're the man. You're the girl. Yeah, you're beautiful. Yeah, you're awesome. Yeah, you're strong. Yeah, you're fast. But we never grow out of that, do we? Don't we all want to hear we've still got what it takes? We've still got potential that God's not done with us? It's one of the reasons He's given us the church, I believe, more than anything else. We can worship God by ourselves, but I'm telling you, we need people around us when the vision takes a blow to say, you're okay, get up, don't quit, you still got it, you still got potential, you still got what it takes. I believe in you, we're going to pray for you, and you're going to do this. Again, where is this in Scripture? Anywhere? Anywhere? From Genesis to Maps, can you point me to a passage that says this? That's why we need each other. Which sort of leads me to the last thing I want to say today. I want you to jump down to Genesis 17, 6. After God renames Abram to Abraham, he makes one other little promise for him that just expands on the vision. He says, I will make you very fruitful. 
And I, I just think that's the fact, proof that God's got a great sense of humor. You know, you're 86, I'm going to make you more fertile in the future. All right? What in the world? <laughs> I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I want us to catch this because we'll miss it if we're not careful. God is saying here, Abram, to be important, to be, to, to be honest with you, as I rename you and I tell you about how I'm going to bless you, I at the same time need to tell you it's not all about you. I'm not just blessing you and Sarah so you'll be happy. I'm blessing you because I've got a, a bigger vision out there that includes a redemptive vision for the whole world. And we this is the gospel crumb, uh, obligatory in all seeker-driven uh, sermons. Although we're, we found a few seeker guys that are no longer even throwing the gospel crumb in there. But don't worry, it's almost gone. It came in and it's moving out quick. Here it goes. We know now he would literally bring Jesus Christ through this family. You're talking about potential. All no, they did not have potential. God chose them for this. They didn't earn it. All Abraham had the tendency to say was us all about me and me and Sarah being happy because we've been barren and have been able to have children all this time. And God's like, hey, it's bigger than you. And, and Abraham, Abraham reminds us here that God's vision, true vision, is always bigger than us. Yes, it involves us. Yes, it blesses us. Yes, God wants to reveal His will for us, but not just for us. There's a corporate aspect. It's bigger than us. It includes God's vision for all other human beings. And that's where you and I come in together, the church, and God's potential, His vision for us and our church. And I just want to tell you guys, as we go forward in this series, man, I just want you to know, man, we believe as a church at Mountain Lake, God has placed, has spoken to us and placed a huge vision in front of us. It's not Sean's vision. It's not Chad's vision. The reason we're so passionate about it is because we are totally convinced it's not something we ate, that it's from God. And it's big. Apparently God's speaking directly to them. And it's big. So as part of this vision, Sean, does that include twisting God's word, mangling it, and not correctly teaching what it says? Just wondering. And over the next few weeks, though, I want to make sure that we're not settling. I want to make sure. God's done so much in our church in the last nine years. The life change is unbelievable. Over a thousand people have been baptized. 75% of them over the age of 18 years old. And God is still at work. I cannot believe we have over 75 children signed up for our Big Splash baptism discussion today. God is at work in the lives of children in our church. He's at work in the lives of students. He is at work. But oh, my prayer would be that nine years into this thing, man, we wouldn't settle in. And we would never dull down church to an experience. We'd go to and sing a few songs and hear a message and then hit Ryan's for the buffet before the Methodists get there. Man, there's, there's, there's so much more to the church and the redemptive purposes of the church than that. But let me tell you what most Christians have shrunk church to. Religion. Something to check off the list. You know, I'd say that seeker-driven guys, they've reduced church down to um, uh, self-help, pop psychology, and delusions of grandeur. And with sprinkled with out-of-context verses that don't even really teach what God's Word is. You don't believe me? Go back and listen to the archives of this radio program. 
rather than owning up and dreaming and seeing and catching a glimpse of the big vision God has for us and the redemptive potential of the church of Jesus Christ and how we relate to each other. Man, we want to change the way people think about church when they first come to our church, but I almost think the longer we go to church, the more we need to continue changing the way we think about church. And we would never dull it down, never dumb it down, and never settle for the status quo. Notice, though, that uh, this sermon occurred after they sang a few songs, and they received a message. For all this talk of being innovative, changing things, isn't it just the same? You sing a few songs, you hear a message, and you go. I'm happy to say hundreds of people here at Mount Lake get it. You realize that, that your small acts of service every week are changing the way you think about church. But I pray more would get it. Yeah, but what about the people who are serving God and their neighbor in their vocation? And they don't have time to volunteer at your church. Does that count for anything? It counts in God's book. We just read it from First and Second Thessalonians in Colossians chapter 3. I pray more of you would come off the sidelines and connect the dots in your mind. That you People are not on the sidelines if they're working in their vocations. You'd never be too busy. That your hobby would never be more important than your ministry. And changing the way people think about church. That we would literally see what we do every Sunday here at Mount Lake as a missionary activity in our world. That's what I pray. I pray that we would not dumb down church just to a place we go to, but realize we are the church and we exist to go out into the world. We've got some huge things planned for late this summer, early fall. I hope you won't miss them. God's doing so much. We're going to totally revamp some of our adult ministries, student ministries, children's ministries over the next few weeks and months, just gearing up for what God wants to do through us. We're going to have a cool day late, uh, late summer, early fall called The Day the Church Left the Building. And we're going we're gonna to shorten all of our worship services down to 30 minutes or less. And we're going to challenge you when that service is over not to leave and go home or go to Ryan's. But to, go, to leave our church building and go be the church and serve people in our community the rest of the Sunday afternoon. My prayer is we'll have over 2,000 people that day being the church. You know, too bad, Sean, that you don't see that the people who go to work who go who work at home as the moms and dads that they are being the church and they are serving their neighbors and their communities too bad that that doesn't count in our community not just huddling for church that's what Je- those are the types of things Jesus created the church to do does that sound fun do you think our church could make an impact on this community 2000 of us together locked arms serving Jesus in our community in one day Absolutely. Will you dream bigger with me? Just for one day, huh? Yet all these people are serving their community day after day after day after day after day. Will you dream a bigger dream for me? Then we're moving in our new worship auditorium. We really believe that the most explosive growth and life change in our church is going to come this next year because of the space. We had right at 3,000 people last week in attendance for Easter services, and they all came through a back entrance of our building. It's crazy what God's about to allow us to do through new space. But dream bigger with me even for our campus. 
Man, we believe God's given us a vision that as we go into the future, we'll be able to open up our campus more to our community. We're literally thinking about subtitling our campus and putting it on our sign out front. Mountain Lake Church, home of North Georgia Conference Center. And opening it up like never before to nonprofits, to businesses, to people in our community and letting them use our facility all during the week. Man, I have a dream one day that we would have 10,000 people on our church campus every year that don't even attend our worship service. Would, would you dream a bigger vision with me about that? Can we invite our community onto our campus and open it wide to them? You know, I'm thinking that uh, Pirate Christian Radio needs to have next year's conference at their facility on the evils of the seeker-driven church, and we can hold it at Mountain Lake. And be the church to our community? Man, there's so much more out there. And then church planting, man. We're, we're, we're gearing up for our next church planners conference in February. We'll have more space over here. The last three years of our church planning conference, we haven't had enough space for everybody. We're praying for between 800 and 1,000 pastors, ministry leaders, fill up this auditorium over here in a few months. We're planting churches all over the place. About to send one out to Australia to plant a church that changes the way people think about church. Cool stuff. Would you dream a bigger dream for me? Multiple campuses. The launch of new ones. You're going to hear more about that very, very soon. The world. I'm excited. It's, it's, it's better than most. We've sent 200, about 200 people this year out to invest into the world. We just had a, a world care team get back from Jamaica. Let me tell you, the people, you think our economy is bad? Jamaica is messed up, upside down. So much red tape and political bureaucracy, the people are starving to death while the government folds their hands. Some of our world care team last week smuggled rice through customs, a special kind of rice these Jamaicans could put in their soup and fed people and went around the government last week. In the name of Jesus. All right? Whatever it takes to love people with the love of Jesus Christ. We've got a team going to Spain, our first team going to Europe ever next month. Would you dream a bigger vision? My goal is that we'd have not 200, but 2,000 one day. That every single one of you, every person that calls our church home, would take three or four or five days of your vacation and not consume it and spend it on yourself, but invest it into the kingdom of God and go somewhere in the world and love people in the name of Jesus. What is God doing about starving children in Ethiopia? We are His plan. That's why we're going back to Malawi and putting a well in. An irrigation system for a village. We believe we are His plan, the church. And the only ceiling will be the ceiling we place on it. On God's vision for us. It's more Preaching about Himself. Preaching about themselves. Wow. Jesus only made a cameo appearance. God's word was twisted. Uh, the everyday vocation that, that God exalts and honors in his scripture was torn down and dissed. And he continues on talking about how wonderful they are. I thought we had a wonderful savior. Hmm. More true than ever before with our greater impact offering coming in a couple of weeks. Because I know the tendency is for all of us to put ceilings on ourselves. To discount ourselves because we're not knocking it out of the park financially what we used to do. Satan would have us focus on what we don't have, what we can't give, and take our focus off what we can do and what we can give and realize our potential. Where is that in the Word? Just serious. 
Can you back it up with any clear passages in context? I'm telling you, if every single one of us will step up to the plate with vision, faith, and surrender, the goal even this year will be knocked out of the park together. Isn't the goal to make disciples of all nations? How's that coming along? The body of Christ. And that's my dream for us. Your dream. The only ceiling will be the ceiling we place on the vision. God's trying to get us to dream a bigger dream. He said this about the church. Thousands of years after Abraham, Ephesians 3.20, he said, Now glory be to God. By His mighty power at work within us, He is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. May He be given glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever through endless ages. Amen. All right, got to stop here and take a look at Ephesians chapter 3. He read verses 20 and 21. Let's read them in context. I'm going to back it up all the way to the beginning of chapter 3. We read, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of the power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how deep and wide is the love of Christ. And we know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I don't think that had anything to do with grander visions, did you? It has to do with Christ. We continue. This is God's dream for you and for me. It's bigger than we've imagined. It's bigger than we've been willing to ask. And so my prayer of urgency today for you and me together is, will you dream a bigger dream with me? 
Will you relight the vision? Would you? I'm going to keep working at the job that God gave me to do. Would you step out from under the ceiling maybe you've placed on yourself? I'm not covered. I, I don't have a ceiling. I'm very happy and satisfied and do all my work as unto the Lord. Maybe you've placed on us. Because if you will, God is waiting to help us all realize our potential. Let's pray. There you have it. Wow. God is there waiting to help us to realize our potential. Man-centered, Christless Christianity. Feeding arrogant people with arrogant thoughts and giving them delusions of grandeur. All without Christ. Oh, Christ is there to waiting to help you discover your potential. I don't think so. Folks, the Christian message is clear. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We are to go and preach God's word in all of its fullness, in all of its political incorrect glory, calling men to repentance, preaching the law to show them and condemn them and show them their need for a savior, preaching the gospel to offer forgiveness, mercy, and grace only through Jesus Christ. Christ is who the scriptures are about, not you and your potential. This is 180 degrees wrong. Folks, I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to continue to bring this discernment outreach, radio outreach to you. You can partner with us by visiting fightingforthefaith.com, clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can uh, send your gift to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, sadly, we're at the end of another program. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program or even previous programs, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, you can. My name is Chris Rosebrew. Or you can receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until next time, may God bless you.